if you're able to find a job where your monotropic state is not just valued, but uh, rewarded, you will be an incredibly successful autistic person. I had ghostwritten 29 books before I realized that (laughs) had any value. I was like, oh, anybody could do that. Episode four, Industrial Light and Magic is Autistic. Welcome to the Autistic Culture Podcast. Each episode, we dive deep into the autistic contributions to society and culture by introducing you to some of the world's most famous and successful autistics in history. Whether you are autistic or just love someone who is, your hosts, Dr. Angela Loria, the linguistic autistic, and licensed psychological practitioner, Matt Lowry, welcome you to take this time to be fully immersed in the language, values, traditions, norms, and identity of Autistica. Before we get started, a quick disclaimer on how we use the word autistic. The purpose of this show is not to diagnose the people or characters we discuss as autistic. While some may have announced being autistic, what we're really sharing here is our observation of what is representative of autistic culture. It can sometimes be difficult for autistic people to celebrate our natural tendencies and traits due to the perception of autism as a disorder that needs to be fixed, a long history of damaging medical interventions to get autistics to fit in with mainstream culture, and protective masking skills many of us have developed to try to stay safe. The purpose of the show is not to diagnose the people or characters we discuss as autistic, but rather to share our observations of what is representative of autistic culture. Today, I want to talk about autistic culture in the workplace and what seems to be the most ideal autistic workplace ever created. Is that my house? Because that's where I feel like is the most autistic workplace (laughs) with nobody around. I feel the same way. Uh, I am at home here in my library slash museum, and uh, I'm here with my books and my cool stuff and my toys and all of my lightsabers, uh, which, uh, again, come from a very autistic place, uh, industrial light and magic. Ah, we might need those lightsabers for today's episode. Exactly. So, uh One of the things that autistic people run into when finding work is that we are not built for a neurotypical workplace. We are not built for neurotypical jobs. Uh, We talked uh, quite a bit about what it means to have monotropic focus. And uh, I guess as a refresher, monotropic focus is... The, the outcome of having a hyper-connected autistic brain. When we love something, we love it to such a degree that we get into this zone. Chick-Sick Mihai talked about the state of flow. And when we get into the state of flow, it can be very, very hard to escape it. Because when we are researching or when we are building or when we are creating the things that we love, we our brains switch over from alpha waves to theta waves and become in this meditative trance. And if you're able to find a job where your monotropic state is not just valued, but uh, rewarded, you will be an incredibly successful autistic person. Unfortunately, there's a lot of 
places out there that value small talk or menial day-to-day stuff as opposed to this monotropic focus. You know, and I want to take a little responsibility here too, because I, books were my monotropic focus from the time I was very, very young. I wrote my first book. I wrote a, I wrote a book when I was five. I wrote a book of poetry when I was seven. Like I came out of the (laughs) womb with this as monotropic focus, but I didn't value it because I, it was so clear to me how easy it was to write books that I assumed anybody could do it. So I devalued it. I actually did not have a, a business, like a real career until I got diagnosed. So I was 40 before I was like, oh, this is a valuable thing. To me, it felt like pet sitting or babysitting. Like it just, it didn't feel like anything that would be hard for anyone. So I had ghostwritten 29 books before I realized that (laughs) had any value. I was like, oh, anybody could do that. And I'm sure that there are a lot of autistic people who they're, they're like video games. That's not a, you can't get paid for that. Like, yeah, yeah, I actually can. Um, But I think at part of autistic culture, because often our our thing, our special interest is taken away from us. Like you can get rewarded with 15 minutes of computer time or you can get rewarded with, uh, uh, my mom would reward me if I got good grades, I could stay up 15 minutes late and read past my bedtime. Um, I then got out of bed, sat in my closet with a flashlight and read for another three hours. But still, it didn't feel valuable. It almost felt like something that was annoying to everyone. Like, why won't you just put the books down? Exactly. And I I think that's the case for a lot of autistic people out there. And it takes a very special set of circumstances in order to nurture that to where the autistic person can become their best self. And this is why there is this documentary on Disney Plus about industrial light and magic, the special effects house that George Lucas created for Star Wars, but ended up working on every major blockbuster for the better part of the last quarter of the 20th century and still going strong today. And in order to create something that has never been created, he needed to have people who had skills that have never been used before, who had never been appreciated, who had who who were not limited by this neurotypical view of this is work, this is play. And right. well, I, like, yeah. I just like to blow shit up in my backyard. Am exactly. I gonna, is someone going to pay me for that Mentos and Coke explosion? <laughs> exactly. And he, he wanted people that did not know the meaning of the word impossible. Uh, in this documentary, George Lucas said that uh, his his favorite thing to do would be to go up to people and say, I need this done. And they say, that's impossible. And he said, well, think about it for a bit. And then they would percolate on it. They would percolate on it and say, hold on. I figured out how to do that. Because uh, so... This group of people, and if you're into movies, if you're into special effects, they are all wizards and legends, and uh, we'll we'll talk about you know all these things. But they they call and wait, themselves industrial light and magic was formed in like the seventies. Was that like uh, late seventies? Nineteen seventy four, when George Lucas oh, okay. was in the uh, the process of starting filming for Star Wars. Uh, well, starting the writing process, uh, oh. 75 and 76 took all this and working into 77. 
But yes, uh, in a time when there were no big budget special effects movies, there was 2001 A Space Odyssey. But uh, again, it had largely set pieces rather than dynamic dogfights and the other interesting stuff that made Star Wars what it is. But he he wanted a specific vision and th this did not exist. There were no special effects houses. So he created what they call a cabal of secret special effects people and a gang of outsiders. Sounds a little QAnon-y. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it, it basically started with all these kids, uh, these late teenagers, ranging from ages like 17 to 19, who liked to gather at uh, the house of uh, this guy, Forrest Ackerman. Forrest Ackerman published a magazine called Famous Monsters of Filmland. And this was essentially the message boards of the set of the 60s and 70s, because all the people who read this magazine wrote in and talked to each other. They loved Frankenstein and the old Universal Monsters, and they talked about how they made special effects. They taught each other. And there's video of Forrest Ackerman and his home in a Dracula cape with a Dracula ring with a, a, a house much like ours, filled mm. with memorabilia, filled with books, Every square inch of his house is a dedicated repository of the knowledge of filmmakers that preceded him. And again, this is a very autistic trait for us to gather as much information, as many resources, and to create our own reference library as well as possible. Because due to our monotropism, we are data seekers. We are not happy unless we are gathering every single scrap of data we can and learning everything we can about it. So basically this team of kids, uh, John Dykstra, Joe Johnston, Kim Ralston, Dennis Murin, and the legendary Phil Tippett, all loved old movies like this and wanted to know how they were made. And every one of these kids, they made, uh, 35 millimeter movies in their backyard. They made stop motion movies in their backyard. They, uh, Phil Tippett, uh, again, a legendary genius that's second only to uh, Ray Harryhausen. Uh, if you'll see behind me, I've got Bubo from uh, uh, Clash of the Titans, a Ray Harryhausen movie. I'm, I'm a big fan of how things are made. But mm. uh, Phil Tippett was a master of stop motion and invented go motion, uh, a way to bring these inanimate creatures to life. And he talked about how this was his big thing, that he loved all of this. He said, quote, he has no social life. He spent his time making home movies. He set up an, oh, eight millimeter, sorry, not 35 millimeter. Uh, he pushed his clay around. He used GI Joes. He was dyslexic. He had a hard time reading. So he used uh, maquettes. He used uh, storyboards. He just, he loved the medium of film. Wait, what's a uh What's the connect? Is there a connection between dyslexia and autism? Is there, there is. Does that co-occur? Uh, one Ooh, of the tell us so one it. of the neat things about the autistic brain, uh, it's hyper connected, right? Again, the thing that makes us autistic, every autistic person has an abundance of synapses, an abundance of brain connections. Uh, 
we, we have neurons and neurons have axons, which are essentially a tree trunk and dendrites, which are tree branches. And we have far, far, far more dendrites than neurotypical people because neurotypical people have a chemical in their brain that causes ex, uh, that causes unused dendrites to melt away to melt mm. away unused synapses in order to better focus on what they deem to be important, neurotypical socialization. Right. So they undergo synaptic pruning. We do not. And because of that abundance, we have a lot of other variation in learning stuff. Uh, there, are, We have a lot of learning disabilities like uh, dyslexia. We have dyspraxia. We have a lot of uh, synesthesia, actually, because mm-hmm. of all the cross wires. It's very, I thought everybody did. I'm like, how else would you think if you weren't like, that seems like just what everyone does. And then I realized, oh, everyone doesn't do that. Oh, I thought that's what brains did. Yeah. But I, and I, I also can't visualize anything. And I, I never, ever, ever, I never forget a name. I know everybody says I never forget a face. I cannot, I still can't figure out what Lady Gaga looks like. Every time it's a surprise to me. (laughs) Like I cannot figure out what people look like, but I never forget like their name or their, like what color I associate with that. Everybody has a color, obviously. Yes. So I know what color you are. Like you're orange. (laughs) Like I like orange. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So. Yeah, it's very, uh, yeah, I guess that's just, there's a, there's a lot going on up there. Hard to keep it all in check. It is. And this is the reason why uh, a lot of people have a difficult time identifying what autism is because there's such a wide expression of it based on how the brain is connected. We have mm. what we call idiosyncratic connections, meaning that no two autistic brains are connected in the same way. Some people might be hyper-connected here or here or here or all the above, which is why uh, someone might be hyperlexic and someone else might have difficulty with verbal apraxia. Mm. So this is why they say if you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person? Exactly. Exactly. And this is this is uh, the, the fun thing about this, because this is why there's so many different expressions. But again, it all goes back to the hyperconnected brain. We all share something. So one of the thing about an autistic culture is that we have a form of communication that is familiar across the board, whether it's our hyperlexia, whether it's uh, someone might be hyperlexic, they might not, but we communicate in very similar ways with echolalia, with body language, with uh, some people might be very, very good at maintaining eye contact. Other people might not be so good, but again, it's it's different from neurotypical eye contact. Yeah, I always got in trouble for staring too much. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because autistic people are said we need to make eye contact. So we say, all right, I will stare you straight in the eyeballs. Is this comfortable enough for you? It is good for me. And yeah. Oh, uh, also our stimming, our stimming, our accent. And I know I've mentioned it before, but in case people haven't heard the previous episodes, sometimes I will do a neurotypical accent, which is slow and smooth and it goes up and down because it makes them feel comfortable. But when I'm autistically speaking, I talk kind of fast and I talk kind of flat and I get a whole bunch of stuff out at once because I speak, I think faster and, than I can speak. And we, the, make the, <gasps> and we make all the sound technicians very annoyed with us. Yes, very much so. Yeah, sorry for the uh, aneurysm there. Yes. 
<laughs> yeah, and and one neat thing that uh, uh, we we do this thing called echopraxia, where mm. we repeat other people's movements, and the most common form of that is if we are. Uh, uh, if one person yawns, other people yawn. And this is due to our mirror neurons. And it's mirror neurons are the basis of socialization. We do things that other people do in order to feel connected. But we also do it for literally everything. For instance, uh, whenever my son passes a an electric tower, he makes an electric tower with his hands and it goes by. That's a natural thing. And one thing that I love watching about this documentary is I love watching people make these unorthodox gestures with their hands as they explain mm. the thing that they're explaining, whether they're talking about cars or trains or monsters or whatever. They produce it in order to visualize their thinking through hands. Yeah. And this is a thing that is incredibly common for us. But so do you think uh, yeah. when these guys met, they're all like, you know, teenagers, young 20s, they're all doing they're talking with their hands in weird ways. They're, they're they're all into they got museums of monsters in their house. Do you think that that was some sort of informal autistic playgroup like they were they were the what made them connect was this similarity? I think that they speak the same language, that they knew that they were of the same culture, and that made them not just form a bond, but the bond that they formed was incredible and has lasted over 50 years. Mm. They knew that uh, they were of the same sort and they gravitated towards each other, which is why, you know, when we talk about autistic culture, we're essentially a diaspora of people of the same culture that have been scattered to the winds. And then we gravitate towards each other based on our special interests, because if we say, oh, you really love doing this, I also really love doing this. And this was an interesting thing about uh, when John Dykstra was assembling the team formally because he got all these people together and he knew that they were super, super into things, but they were also very they're, they're over their their interests were varied and overlapping. And every mm. single one of them wanted to create either draw or write or sculpt or construct the world's first uh, motion controlled camera. Because all these people love to tinker around in the garage. And because of the monotropism, they would work 20 hours a day because they love to do this. Yes. Well, so, okay. So I want to talk about one thing here. I get really mad about the concept of work-life balance. I want to explain why. Work is a subset of life. Like your whole life includes things like your family, the books you read, the music you like, how you like to react, how you like to relax, your job, school. Those are all aspects and work is a subset. So you can't balance, if there was a scale, you could balance apples and oranges because oranges are not a subset of apples. Yes. But you can't balance something inside. You can't balance the core of the apple with the apples while the core is inside. So this whole whenever I hear work life balance, anybody who likes that term, I'm sure is neurotypical because it yeah. makes no fucking sense to me whatsoever. Not and at then all. my second question is, even if it did make sense, why would you want to balance it? If it's if you're going to do 40 to 80 hours a week of something, 
making monsters, blowing up things, developing go motion. Like, why would you want less of it? Don't do a job you want less of. That's, again, I think that neurotypical culture is largely based on Puritanism and colonialism and this this belief that suffering is somehow mm. makes things better, that work should be pain. Because, again, mm. this goes back to the puritanical mindset. That yeah, if God likes that. God's exactly. super into that. Yeah. yeah, God will reward you if you suffer through life. And so, therefore, right. it's the neurotypical tendency. And this is one thing that George Lucas speaks about because his father wanted him to be a businessman instead of a race car driver. Because George Lucas is very much a uh, sensory seeker. He loves fast things. His uh, basic communications to his cast were faster and more intense. But huh. he... He loved the things that he loved, and his father was very much, no, that's not a real job. You should suffer. Work means pain. And right. I, I think that this is why a lot of autistic people have difficulty with the workforce, because, number one, it, it makes no sense to us to intentionally put ourselves into a situation where we will be hurt. And number two, people tell us, you can't make a living at that. And this is one thing that George Lucas went through himself because, you know, his father was telling him, oh, yeah, movies, that's not a thing. You can't make space movies. That's crazy talk. And a lot of autistic artists are told, yeah, you should just give up on that and find something that is in a cubicle and has a regular salary instead of being the person you need to be. Mm. And so did George Lucas, like, what was the chicken and the egg here? Did he, did Star Wars come first? Was that, was there, they already knew they were going to make the movie and they're like, we could either do this with or without special effects or like, how did that, did he make the job for himself is what like my real question is there. So, uh, he, uh, initially he wanted to be a race car driver until a terrible wreck, uh, where, uh, he almost died. And then he decided, Hey, I really like watching movies while I'm, you know, not dying and healing. Uh, I want to go to film school. So he went to film school. He met uh, Francis Ford Coppola and Steven Spielberg. And again, got into a whole bunch of friends who like making movies. And he said, you know, I, he, uh, made his first movie, uh, THX 1138, a dystopian science fiction. Uh, he, he, he really liked it. Uh, the critics did not. So his second project was American Graffiti, which was teenagers in uh, 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 the 1950s. People loved it. And he said, well, maybe I can have a balance of the two and make Flash Gordon. He couldn't get the rights to Flash Gordon. So he made Star Wars. But in order to do Star Wars, he got a deal for Star Wars and said, in order to do this the way I have it in my brain, because he's a very visual person. Uh, he, he apparently is much more visual and loves maquettes and loves uh, the, the pre-production drawings and draws upon inspiration from other people in order to put all this stuff together. And that's where Industrial Light and Magic came from, because he wanted something that could live up to this thing in his head when nothing else existed like it at the time. Uh, uh, he, he Actually, his quote on that is that he's doing things that have never been done before. He's a visual thinker. He said, I'm a perfectionist. If it's not right, I get really upset inside. Mm -hmm. 
And this actually led to uh, a meltdown on the set because, again, working with a neurotypical uh, assistant director and other neurotypical people, uh, he had hired a producer, Gary Kurtz, to protect him from the neurotypicals. Uh, okay, wait, but, hold on. Oh. I want to. I'm going to have you slow down because I, this is sort of maybe surprising. Oh. But because we focus on autistic culture and trying to not put things in like a pathological, like medical lens. We haven't talked about an autistic meltdown and what that really uh, is. And I also don't know how to think about it from a strengths-based lens. I certainly know what a meltdown is for me, but I don't know if I have the strengths-based based view to it. So let's spend a little time on that and then I want to hear about it. So because of our brains, we are very, very sensory intense. We, we have ways that we... We need to do things. And when things, we have a thing called expectation sensitivity because mm. we plan out A, B, C, D, and E in our heads. We communicate it to other people. And when things do not go according to that plan, we have to rethink things and re redo the plan. And redoing the plan takes a lot of energy for us. And when we are depleted from energy, we enter a burnout state. We might have a meltdown. We might have a shutdown. We might be devoid of the energy needed for the situation at the time. And this is a, essentially a medical crisis for us, for our people. And this leads to a lot of issues in many professions where uh People do not understand that we we process stuff a lot more than neurotypical people do. And mm. therefore, everyday tasks take a lot more energy for us to complete them. Uh, everyday communication. Uh, every time we have to stop and make chit-chat with other people, it eats up our system resources. Oh it my eats God, up our phone battery. calls. I, exactly. If I have to do a customer service phone call to like a call center that takes an hour to fix something, like a oh, bill, man. I, my whole day is done. I, exactly. I know I need to take a whole day off. And so then I avoid that. And yes. I don't think it makes sense to people why I'm avoiding it. But I'm like, I need a whole day for this phone call. Yes. And I never want to come up with a whole day that I know I'm going to be miserable for at least 10 hours to accomplish this task. So I can look sort of irresponsible. Like I'd rather pay a late fee. I'd exactly. rather, I like, I pay tickets that I could fight because I know the cost to me of fighting it is like, fine, I'll just pay the stupid ticket. Yeah, it's a self-preservation thing because we know that this is going to be taxing on us. And mm -hmm. there, therefore, we become somewhat avoidant. And because neurotypical culture is based on this uh, social aspect, is based on this necessitated small talk, this necessitated... I, I once worked for an organization uh, where when my review came up... Uh, they said, oh, yes, your work is fine. Your clients all rate you highly. But I would really rather that you uh, walk around and uh, stop in other people's offices and chat with them once in a while. And I'm like, why? No. I am here to do my job. I'm here for my clients. I'm here to do my work. Why must I chat with coworkers? And again, because I speak in an autistic way and because I speak about my special interests, the options are to go into someone's office and say, hey, have you seen this new movie? No, why are you asking me that out of the blue instead of, 
Hi, how are you? Is your friend good today? I am glad. How is the weather? The weather is weather today, is it not? And it's how about the, sports? Do you exactly. watch the sports? Uh, how or did is you that not sport watch today? the sports? Exactly. It is sporting. Yes. And this is a thing that in order to create an autistic culture friendly workspace, we must allow autistic people to socialize autistically, to act autistically in order to avoid the 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 stuff that comes out because our, it is not our natural state to have a meltdown. It is not but our natural listen, state. But George Lucas, I've, I've figured out this technique. George Lucas put someone in between him and the, like, because I love these bridge people, these yes. translator people. I have several in my life. I am very grateful for them. Yes. Uh, what happened? Uh, well, uh, yeah, uh, it uh, the movie got finished, uh, and when they were no, actually, but the, what happened with the meltdown? Like, did the oh. person in the middle just not do the middling right? Uh, no, he did not. Uh, that actually yeah. led to a, a great uh, amount of conflict on the subsequent movies and read, led to uh, the prequels being done in a completely different manner. Uh, mm. He actually ended up hospitalized because of intense autistic, bur well, intense burnout. Uh, because, mm -hmm. uh, again, I have not met or evaluated George Lucas, but it seems like an intense autistic burnout state. And this is a thing that happens to us when we deplete our energy for too long. It's something mm. that every autistic person experiences at some point in our lives, but it's not well documented among neurotypicals because we get to the point where we just literally can't get out of bed because we can't do the, the thing anymore. Even if it's something we love, we have this internal uh, uh, PDA against self-care because we just can't do anything. And, and I think what's happening like to me is George Lucas at this point is holding space for so many things, so many things yes. that haven't been invented. Uh, I'm guessing he's probably got other people's money that he oh, could yes. lose if he doesn't get this right. So that pressure, the creativity, the like, I have to invent things like I know I can do this, but I have to create this. Then I have to manage people or like hold space for other people to do things. He was probably juggling just an unbelievable number of things. And then sometimes for me, it's like I know one autistic meltdown I had at work I paid for this. I did a million dollar renovation of a building with like my oh, wow. money, like put it on my credit card. And then I hired a photographer. It was like $1,500. The photographer was coming to take pictures of this renovation. And somebody had taken a water bottle, probably a staff member or whatever. And they like crunched the water bottle, like how people do, like they collapsed it and they threw it on a table. And in every single picture of this $1,500 photo shoot of this million-dollar renovation was this crunched water bottle. And I know other people could see the room. I could only see the water bottle in the pictures. It was the only thing I could see. And I didn't understand. I wasn't there for the photo shoot. I was actually with Richard Branson on Necker Island. And when I saw the pictures, I was like, I had put someone on my team in charge of this photo shoot. How do you not see this essentially, you know, like three foot high water bottle? It was this big, but it looked three feet to me. I'm like, it dominates every photo. 
how do you not see this? And I literally like lost my mind on this woman and she immediately quit. So now I had a whole nother problem, which was how the hell do I fill her job remotely? But it was a total autism. I'm like, I'm with Richard Branson. I'm trying to build that relationship. I put a million dollars on my credit card, so I've got to make it work. I've hired this photographer. I can't be there for the photo shoot. We need the pictures by this deadline. And then there's a fucking crushed water bottle in every one of my $1,500 worth of pictures. It was just, and I was not nice. I did not, I did bad. I did not nice. Yeah, yeah. And this is this is the thing because- we we feel these things. We we are we have a better attention to detail for things that are meaningful for us, and this this is something that you know it just doesn't register for them. And again, like with Star Wars, the studio said, "Well, why don't you just uh, end the movie early? Uh, as soon as they escape the Death Star, just cut it off there, and that will be the ending." And he was like, "No, we we this is the story. It has to be important." Because, again, fighting for the small details, fighting for artistic integrity, fighting to get your vision produced in the way that you want it produced, this is an important battle for us. Because otherwise, what's the point of doing it if you're not going to do it to the best of your ability? We can't half-ass things. If we if we find it worth doing, we have to make it the best we can possibly make it. And that, I think, is the is the strengths-based side of the meltdown. Like the meltdown comes from our attention to detail, our ability to hold so many things at once, to feel so many things, to see so many things, to take in so much data. And we're like looking for patterns all the time. And we're doing all that pattern matching. And with it's very hard to know when the cup is gonna be too full and start overflowing. Exactly. We love sharing stories of autistic culture. And if you are seeing yourself in any of these stories and you're wondering if maybe you're one of us or maybe you're already diagnosed or self-diagnosed and you want to know if Matt can help you live your life better and be more authentically autistic, check out his website at mattlowerylpp.com. That's Matt, M-A-T-T, Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y. And then that LPP, it stands for Licensed Psychological Practitioner. So head on over to mattlowrylpp.com and learn more about working with my buddy, Matt. Due to our interoception difficulties, we don't pay attention to how far we're pushing ourselves. We don't have this fuel gauge to let us know how much energy we have left. We All we can see is the thing in front of us, the thing that we want to complete. That's all that matters. So we don't pay attention to our bodies. We don't pay attention to our limits. We don't pay attention to our needs. And if we are surrounded by people who are not supportive of us, they don't see those things either. So we crash and burn. And we often need external support in order to remind us to eat, to remind us to drink, to remind us to say eight hours of sleep is probably a good thing for your body instead of, uh, you know, other people just pushing us harder due to money or other circumstances. Because it's not like we don't know that we need money. It's just that right now I need to take care of this. I wish other people were also taking care of these things. And that's where, you know, having capable 
people in your life, uh, assistants and coworkers and all this other stuff is important because when we get into this monotropism, and this is a thing, you know, I talked about with the old Ghostbusters thing, that uh, the autistic characters were so involved in the uh, creation of the gear, they needed holistic people to back them up on stuff in order to get things taken care of. Yeah. And this is one thing about P- Phil Tippett. Phil Tippett, at one point in this documentary, says... Uh, Quote, I had this obsessive side. I get up and look forward to doing it. At the end of the day, I'm so exhausted, I have to have a few beers to calm down. I've always had depression and anxiety throughout my life. The anxiety was never motivated by anything. It's like a storm. I realized if I made stuff and got out of my own mind, I was cured. The storm would just go away. That was my self-narrative that I thought I was operating until just recently. And he describes this to a T. Phil Tippett, okay, so for reference, uh, the man invented Go Motion. The man was going to be uh, the the head behind, uh, he did all the Go Motion on uh, uh, Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, uh, Dragon Slayer, anything in the 80s that had stop motion and had Phil Tippett attached to it. And he was going to do uh, the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park until CGI came along. But we'll talk Mm. about that in a minute. But anyway, Phil Tippett is talking about all this. And he said this exact phrase uh, about the anxiety, about the depression, about the obsession, about the exhaustion. And then he said, just recently, it occurred to me that I might be bipolar. What? (laughs) He came so close. So close. No, dude, not bipolar. So close. And uh, again, keep in mind. So for the past 30 years, Phil Tippett has made his own stop motion movie. He's worked on a single movie by himself for 30 years. And it was just released last year called Mad God. And please look it up. It is the the seminal work of stop motion artistry. Uh, it is spooky. It is weird. It is dark. It is deep. It is amazing. It is the work of one man for thirty years. That is monotropic focus to a T. To say I want to create my movie in my basement, and it is an astounding work. But again, he it, because. Because especially when he came to this conclusion, autism still has this this weird, uh, I don't know, perception, this weird uh, thing about being only for children. For some Mm. reason, neurotypicals believe that we grow out of it because of our masking tendencies, because adults have better coping skills than children have. And again, because of our intense emotions, we are intense in everything. The first thing that people jump to is bipolar. Mm-hmm. And I, I, if Phil Tippett is listening to this, I God, I would love to talk to you more about this. Matt, and, Matt will give you yes. a free diagnosis. Free. It'll be strengths based. You'll like it. Yes. Okay, just write to us. Drop us a line. We'll hook you up. <laughs> exactly. And that's the thing because. It, this is the autistic culture and other people uh, in the documentary. Jean Bolt uh, is a woman who uh, she talks about her life painting with her grandmother. She says her refuge as a child you, where you could truly disappear. My mother would drop me off at the gallery of art on the weekends and I just walk about. She would I'll watch be. rehearsal at Same the theater. Girl work on props. She got her start on Labyrinth and created. She invented morphing for Willow. 
Uh, wow. She changed special effects. And again, she has the autistic accent. She has the autistic body language. She she f- so goes into the autistic culture. She's so cool. So what do you think, what do you think makes uh, an autistic friendly workplace? Like why was this company able to attract this talent? I think it's because they didn't have a preconceived notion of what a special effects studio needed to be. They said, we need talented people to do all sorts of things that we don't know need to happen yet. Because again, they needed special cameras, but they didn't know they needed special cameras. So they hired people with engineering backgrounds to make things, to do the things they needed to do. They they had an undefined endpoint, so they couldn't possibly do it wrong. And I don't think that a neurotypical culture would be capable of thinking outside the box in these ways to make visual magic. And I think it's the the dedication. I think it's the focus. I think it's the passion that drove all of this stuff together to make everybody else go further and experiment and try new things. And when they tried these new things, it advanced not just autistic culture, but culture in general. They reinvented what it means to make a movie. They reinvented the visual medium of film because, again, no one put any limits upon them and they were just allowed to push themselves to their creative limit, to let their monotropic focus go wild and they were were rewarded for being the best possible version of themselves. And I Mm. think that an autistic-friendly workplace allows autistic people to work around their needs, to work around their energy reserves, to indulge their uh, their their monotropic focus, to indulge their love. I'm currently working on uh, developing an autistic center in Louisville, and I'm recruiting a lot of autistic and neurodivergent people to do this. And in order to do that, I've realized that we have to have half days. We have to have people who are working better at uh, in the afternoons and in the evenings than in the mornings. We have to have people who are able to complement each other. People, Some people are very, very good at bookkeeping and very, very good at record keeping. Other people are very, very good at uh, just doing this task of understanding speech and understand occupational therapy or understanding therapy for the autistic mind. And it takes a variety of people, a variety of people doing a variety of things to the best of their ability and plugging them in where they best fit instead of expecting that there's a grid that everyone is interchangeable. I believe that due to the whole colonialism and due to the whole, uh, you know, Puritanism, there's this interchangeability about neurotypical culture that says that everyone should be able to do the same job equally. And if Mm. someone doesn't work, then you replace the cog in the machine and the machine keeps going. I think that in order to have an autistic friendly workplace, you have to acknowledge the individual strengths and weaknesses of everybody involved and create an environment that allows everyone to thrive and recharge as needed. Yeah. And, uh, so like industrial light and magic as a workplace is, is there a traditional aspect to it? Is there like a go into work at nine, leave at five, get a paycheck? Like, is there, 
Well, is it like a regular job or were they a bunch of freelancers that just sort of shared a vision and got paid separately? I don't know how that all worked. Well, they they did have a pay structure, but they also had a swimming pool in the front lot and uh, people came to work with no shoes. And uh, they, they Sounds often, about right. Yeah, they often just uh, slept on the couch and uh, would wake up at two o'clock and uh, go to work. And it's... They were very, very free to do what they needed to do. And as mm. as the company has grown, and again, it's now owned by Disney, uh, the special effects industry in general is very, very neurotypical, profit-driven these days. But this documentary is very, very much in the glory days of when embracing neurodiversity led to all of this different revolution and it's fantastic to watch it's fantastic to watch all these people with autistic accents stimming as they talk uh, their bodies moving freely as they talk and embracing uh, their, their they don't identify as autistic because again uh, Phil Tippett labeled himself as bipolar mm. but it's it's fantastic to watch these people be their genuine selves and see this autistic culture on screen represented. And it's just wonderful. What about hierarchy? Like, was was George the big guy and everybody like, was he the big boss or is there a different sense of how roles and responsibilities work? Uh, well, uh, John Dykstra was originally the person who assembled the team, and he's got a number of autistic traits himself. Uh, again, coming to work with no shoes, very much uh, involved in the creation of the Dykstra cam, uh, the 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 foundation of uh, oh man, uh, uh, the camera, ah. Uh, uh motion control cameras. And uh, oh, yeah, I know that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he invented that. He invented all of this and he created this environment. But again, George Lucas was under an amazing amount of pressure from the studio and two separate banks because while creating Star Wars, he, uh, he also put up a large amount of his own money to make Star Wars a success. And the bank called in a loan because the bank said, yeah, I'm not sure that your movie is going to be successful. We want the money back now. So he had to go to a separate bank Hence, all the meltdown and burnout. So he and John Dykstra did not get along because George said, oh, yes, these people are breathing down my neck. We need results now. And John Dykstra says, well, we're, we've just now built everything we need to do in order to build the things that we need to build. And it, it was a very different thing. But it it's, uh, uh, yeah, uh, it, it was a very, very different structure at the time. And it's uh, it's an amazing thing to watch. Once they moved ILM to Skywalker Ranch, it became much more under George Lucas's control rather than John Dykstra's. And uh, at that point, George Lucas wanted to invent uh, CGI, uh, computer-generated graphics. So he uh, hired these two guys, Ed Catmull and Jim Blinn. And uh, if you see videos of these people... They, they invented Pixar. They invented computer graphics from the ground up. Ed Catmull 
uh, was working on the very first node of the internet. Well, the the, the fourth node of the internet. And wow. he said, you know what? I bet I can make this computer make a little movie. So he scanned in his hand and uh, made a movie with his hand. And that's the first ever computer generated movie. And George Lucas hired these guys to create edit droid, to start editing things digitally, to start making computer graphics, to make the Pixar computers, to do all of these things and revolutionize the way that movies are made. Because again, George Lucas's whole deal with this was, yes, it's great to have money, but boy, can you think of all the neat things we can make? Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a different relationship to money in autistic culture? I, yes. Like the purpose of money or mindset around money? In, in my experience, neurotypical culture, again, is based on hierarchy. Neurotypicals place a very, very grand importance on uh what your position in society is, how much power, how much leverage, and how much money you have. Because money buys power. Money buys connections. Money can buy nice things, but it's all about the hierarchy and the power that it wields. Autistic people tend to be more of the, I need money in order to get the things that I like. Money has more of a concrete purpose. And if you have a lot of money, that's great. That means that you can either buy cool stuff or it just kind of sits there. So, yeah, you won. Yeah, exactly. You have achieved money. Well done. Yes. When we don't have enough money, we panic because, again, we need to get all the things paid for. But when we do have money, it, it it's just there to make life run easier. And mm-hmm. it, it's very counter to the, again, uh, hierarchical structure and the, the demand for power that the neurotypical society pushes upon us. Yeah. And and I guess that does go back to colonialism and Protestantism and uh, early uh, patriarchal structures of how society has just worked into the function of everything. When autistic people find a special interest, they go deep and have a lot of knowledge, even if they don't have that formal education background to go with it. If you want to capture your spin in a book, check out Angela's work at differencepress.com, differencepress.com, and find out more about becoming an author and establishing your credibility with a book. One of the things I've been working on just in terms of having a workplace that I want to be friendly to neurodivergence, not just my own, is this idea that the most valuable thing we actually have is time. Yes. So what I pay you is like important. It has to pay the bills. It has to have some some meaning. But what you are doing with your time is what I'm really paying you with. So we need to be on the same page about what do you want to do with your time? And is that something I can use in my business? Yes. Because the real payment isn't me as the employer paying them. The real payment is the employee giving me their time like that. You can't do anything about. But we've all figured out that money, we could figure something out. We could stay on someone's couch. We could live in our mom's basement or in our dad's library, like we talked about on our Emily Dickinson episode. Like there will always be a way to get our needs met, but there will not be a way to replace the way you've spent that time. And if you were at ILM in those early days, 
you wouldn't take back, well, I would guess, I can't speak for all those guys, but you wouldn't take back a single minute of being part of that. Even if they doubled your pay or halved your pay, you would probably work exactly the same amount of hard on those projects. Yeah, yeah, because uh, like you say, time is the only truly finite resource. And if if you live your life in a way that uh, you express yourself, in a way that you have done your best work, in a way that you can be proud of, that's what life is truly about. And I mean, it's great to accumulate a lot of cool stuff, but I mean, if you're able to change the world, oh man, that's a life well spent. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. So that, I think that is a great way of looking at uh, autistic culture in the workplace. The uh, maybe shadow side of this is just obviously most people are neurotypical. That's what makes them typical. Let's say at least 51%. And therefore, most workplaces are neurotypical workplaces and finding a way for you in your workplace to like learn what's going to work for you and communicate that. And maybe that place works for you. Maybe it doesn't, but knowing there are places like ILM out there or you can invent them. Um, But finding a way to do work that's meaningful, not just get paid Uh, is one of the keys, I think, to unlocking a a joyful experience as a part of the autistic culture. We all got to pay the bills, but it's fun if we can do it while we're actually having fun. Exactly. So, uh, Angela, what was your favorite part about being autistic this week? All right, we're going to wrap up with this. I... Let's see. I will tell you a little autistic story from my week. I made a bunch of changes in my marketing over at Difference Press. We've got some new stuff coming out and some stuff I'm retiring. And I had to unfortunately let someone on my team go, which was no fun. And I explained to this person, like, this is not you. You're amazing. I just don't have work that matches your skill set. And now I need other things and I need someone with a different skill set to do those other things because of the changes. So then I found out that this person went to other people on the staff and was saying goodbye. And she said, I guess I must have just pissed Angela off. And it got back to me that she said this. She was like, I guess I must have pissed her off. And I was like, the what what about that conversation made you think I pissed you off? And then I realized this is how neurotypicals think. Her assumption was that I lied to her about changing my pro. I don't know. Maybe they don't call it lying. I get confused. But somehow I made up some bullshit about I don't need your skill set right now. I'm like, your skill set is amazing. I just don't need it. And the interpretation was Angela hates me. I did something to make her mad at me. So I'm like, what? how do we, I don't, this breaks my brain, Matt. I need autistic therapy with you. Um, It like totally breaks my brain. And then I was like, I am going to call her and discuss this. 
So I was like, I would like to explain a little about autistic culture because I am very hurt by this statement. And also right now I am pissed off at you. And I would like to model for you what I do when I'm pissed off. I pick up the phone and I say these words. I'm pissed off at you right now. I'm like, if I'm actually pissed off, those words will come out of my mouth. If not, I will say something like, I don't have work for you, which will mean, crazy, I don't have work for you. I think (sighs) that that's the weirdest thing because I, I was talking with someone the other day about the differences in intent behind neurotypical interaction and uh, autistic interaction. And we are very direct. We are very open. We are very honest. But neurotypicals tend to want to skirt around the issue and be very indirect about things. And there is this something about this indirectness where they are always inferring content where there is none intended from us because we we will say oh yes i don't want to do that right now and we'll say oh so you hate me what no why why?" yeah because again a neurotypical person will say will think oh i hate you and then say oh i don't want to do that so they go on this extra bridge too far to infer things based on neurotypical expectation and yeah I find that horrifying. And this is it's why it's so yeah. upsetting to me. And for until I'm almost 50, so I'm going to call this like a birthday mitzvah. But uh, until this time, uh, what it does is like uh, uh, the way I explain it is like I take to my bed. But yeah. literally, I'll spend two weeks in bed over a comment like that because I'm like, how can I do it? People say they want transparency. I give you total transparency. And now you make up some story about me. And it's so disheartening and disheartening and deflating that I literally like can't get out of bed. Yes. And this time I just called and told her. I'm like, now I am pissed off at you. Here's what that looks like. (laughs) Yes. Because again, it drained your energy. You, You had to completely... When these things happen, we replay social interactions, we dissect the social interactions, because our instinct is to say, oh, clearly I have made an error. Let me go back and do the replay, do an analysis, and then, wait, no, that, that, I, I said that very clearly. Uh, no, I said that very clear. No, I said that. And we will do that for days and days and days and days. Oh, I gather evidence. I make PowerPoints. Yes. I've written yes. I, I like multi-page letters, point-by-point breakdowns. Yes. Usually they all stay in my head, but this time I said something which felt like at least a little empowered. She probably still doesn't believe me. Now she probably made up some new story. But anyway, at least I was like, I see what's happening here. It's the double empathy problem. It is. It is. It is. To a T. Yeah. I was very grateful for, uh, I was very grateful for that research because for the first time it didn't make me feel like I did something wrong. I did. How did I mess up this social interaction again? I thought I knew these rules. I read the rule. I keep reading the rules. How do I keep getting it wrong? And this time I was like, oh, double empathy. I know what happened here. 
Yeah, and it's an important thing for all autistics to keep in mind at all times because of the the culture mismatch, the the the, the conflict between our natural way and their natural way. And well, I don't even know if it's natural for them because again, society is so ingrained with this that lying is preferable to truth. It's yeah. it's really horrifying. Yes. So that's my story. Had a breakthrough, did not take to my bed for two weeks. Happy we were able to share the ILM story with you. Uh, you know, work work is work. Work isn't always easy. But if you are out of alignment all day, every day, uh, don't be surprised if you get burned out or fired. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, we'll see you next time, guys. Have a good one. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Autistic Culture Podcast. If you like this show, you can help other people find it by taking a few minutes to rate and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And remember, no one ever changed the world by being like everyone else. Mm-hmm.